Amen. Friends, please be seated and delightful to see you tonight. And here we are in these days, um, really interesting days. We have a new year ahead of us. This is our first uh, little mini conference for the year. And uh, it just seems that, seems, you know, it seems good to the Holy Spirit and to me to bring a word over this weekend with respect to how we see the world, how we see the future, to make sure there is confidence in our hearts. I mean, the last two years there's been this pandemic so disruptive of the world, and now the newspapers are full of, uh, you know, threats with Russia and China and all kinds of things, and you think, well, the world is, uh, has certainly changed a bit, and yet it's been changing, but you're not to think that this means that this is the end of the world as you know it. If you, you haven't got to think back very far, and there was uh, World War I and the Great Depression and the Spanish flu and World War II, and that was followed by, you know, the 50 or 60 or 70 years, the greatest years of peace and prosperity the world had known. But nevertheless, uh, interesting and difficult times come, and you're not, you're not to think it's the end of the age. You're not to misinterpret Scripture. And that's one of the things we need to consider uh, in these few days. I want to show you some things from the Bible. And uh, really we're going to be addressing in these three meetings the whole question of worldview. And asking the question, what are the elements of a biblical worldview? That is a truly biblical worldview, a proper Christian worldview, or if you like, an apostolic worldview, because properly understood it, all, it amounts to the same thing. Uh, you've seen on the board up here, if you can see it on the camera, I'm not sure, but there, there is a text proclaiming all nations will be blessed through him, Psalm 72. And uh, my glasses have gone away. Ah, oh, there they are. <laughs> now that's, that's a sign of mature years, isn't it? You, know, you heard about the fellow that searched the house from one end to the other looking for his glasses. They're on his face the whole time. You know? <laughs> it happens, Lisa. And <laughs> so uh, anyway, here's one version of Psalm 72. But here's another, ESV. May his name endure forever, his fame continue as long as the sun may, and then this phrase here has a different turn of words here, may people be blessed in him and nations call him blessed. I can tell you now, if all nations and all people are calling him blessed, it's because they have been blessed. And this is the big picture in Holy Scripture. And yet across the world you, we find Christians in two frames of mind. We, we find large numbers of those who emotionally are inclined to think that time is short, the world's getting worse, it won't be much longer, Jesus will return every, any day. You know, they think in terms of the Antichrist and the Great Tribulation, and, and they're full of all these ideas, and invariably they think it's any day now. And yet, I've been a Christian since 1967. How many years is that? I mean, this, this is over 50 years now, getting on to 55 years, and there has not been a year yet where people didn't think it was any time now. You know, uh, I remember the year I was converted, 1967, and I was told confidently Jesus would be back within five years, ten at the very most, the world can't possibly last longer. But a certain kind of Christian has been saying that for 2,000 years. It's never been true, it's not true now, and it has never been true. There is another point of view, wonderfully biblical, historically Christian. It has always been the predominant worldview of thinking people who really understood their Bibles, and that is that the gospel is here for the long haul that the gospel had a work to do progressively in the world to transform nations until the whole world was step by step a far better place and would issue in peace and prosperity across the globe to the glory of Christ. You get scriptures like the one we've already quoted. You get scriptures like the one that says the, the whole earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. The implication there is the waters cover the sea completely. And there are, there are many, many passages in Scripture, and, and we're not going to be looking at them all, but I want to give you some, some tools anyway. If, um, 
if we are to have a positive eschatology and a biblical worldview, that is, what belief system do we have about the future, about what Christ is doing and will do, the future of the church, the future of nations, the outcomes of the gospel, if we would have a truly biblical worldview, it will have some elements. We will recognize, first of all, Christ is enthroned. He is ruling from heaven. He's the ruler of the kings of the earth. He rules a kingdom, and the Bible says over and over, all things are subject to him. Everything in heaven, everything in earth, everything under the earth, everything bows to him, everything obeys him. And he is working through the church progressively to bring his will on earth as it is in heaven. That's why we're told to pray, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so Christ is enthroned. The cross of Christ was a finished work with respect to the fact that something was put in place permanently and powerfully for the salvation of men. And no other work, no other suffering, no other price has to be paid that this gospel will go out continuing to save people. The Bible speaks continuously of this being a long time. It speaks of, uh, you know, whatever the sun endures, whatever the moon endures. It, uh, it, Jesus himself spoke several times about the fact that he would be a long time coming. Yes, he will come. There will be another visible appearing of Jesus. But I'm saying there's a huge work to do in the world before that day comes. So you've got to think in terms of long time, not short time. We've only had 2,000 years since the cross. The gospel has already prevailed in the world insofar as the church is the largest living, breathing entity in the world. It's also the largest institution in the world. The, the biggest thing alive on planet earth right now is the church of Jesus Christ, that is the body of Christ. And even, even if you took out people who are only half in the faith and the people who are a bit nominal and, and you know, the people who don't know much, it's still the biggest thing in the world and getting bigger every day. It's alive, the living church of Jesus Christ. It's full of his glory, full of his spirit, and ultimately his word goes everywhere. This, this gospel and the work of the church is for the refining of nations and cultures. That doesn't mean there aren't some setbacks along the way. And, you know, any, any war has battles that to and fro, the, the outcome of the war is the critical thing. And uh, even, you know, even in the European war, in World War II, for example, when uh, the, the Nazi forces were on the back foot and retreating and, and German cities were a mess and the Allies had already invaded Europe, you know, D-Day was passed and they'd gone a long way in. You know, the Germans rallied their forces for trying to get a bit of a breakthrough and it eventuated in a thing called the Battle of the Bulge. And so this, this, the Allied line advancing on Germany ended up with a bulge in it where the Germans tried to push through, but they didn't succeed. Allies still won the war. So occasionally in your life and mine, there's a, there's a battle of the bulge. You know, something pushes back on us or on circumstances or on a particular nation or a culture. But overall, we have this phenomenal advance of the kingdom of God. Enemies are becoming friends. That's a message of the scripture too. And over and above all of that, a, a wonderful, wonderful message about the maturing of the church in the earth. And I'm just touching on some highlights and a couple of these things we'll come back to. But, but think of this one passage from the New Testament which talks about uh, the, the church, the fivefold ministry and the church together. It says, until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ, then, so it's talking future, it puts this word then in there, then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Imagine that day when it gets that good. But it's more. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every, this is a, this is a big statement, to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head that is Christ. That's an astounding statement that the church on earth will overcome these weaknesses, that is, overcome infancy, instability, uh, deception, and grow to, to become, in every respect, the mature body 
of him who is the head, that is Christ. And then it adds this bit. From him the whole body, joined and held together, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does his work. So this is the future. And the whole purpose of, of the gospel and of the Holy Spirit in the world has been bit by bit to not only bring nations to this better place, to bring the church to this better place. It's a huge work and it takes a long time. It's progressive and we're part way in. Now, that scripture I just read to you is from Ephesians 4. Here's an equivalent hint at it. It's an equivalent scripture. You can put the two together. This is from Isaiah where he says, then all your people will be righteous. See, that, that's looking forward to the same day. They shall possess the land forever. What's this possess the land? See, it's, using, it's using the imagery or the symbols of Old Testament Israel, but Paul in the gospel, writing to the Romans, I think it was, he made it very clear that Abraham was not just promised the land of Israel, he was promised the whole world. And besides which, Scripture says, you are God's field. So when it says we'll possess the land forever, we'll possess ourselves, we'll belong to each other, we inherit the whole world. It, it's astounding. Jesus said the meek will inherit the earth. No, the, the, everywhere you look you find this kind of thing in the Scriptures. And the Lord ends that little paragraph in Isaiah by saying, I am the Lord, in its time I will hasten it. In other words, when the right time comes, He'll be putting it in place and, and speedily putting in place the things that make for it. So anyway, over these three sessions, uh, here are the three things I want to speak of that will help us get a better view of the times we live in and the times to come. Tonight, I want to spend a few minutes talking about how to read the book of Revelation. That is what approach to take, what, what view to have in mind when you read the book of Revelation. Tomorrow night, I want to talk about the new heavens and the new earth, and Sunday morning, talking about creating the new Jerusalem. Now, these terms come out of Isaiah 65, verse 17, where he says, this is Isaiah quoting the Lord, he says, See, I will create new heavens and a new earth. And everybody thinks, oh, destruction of the cosmos, planet gone, moon gone, sun gone, stars gone, and, and a whole something new put in place. It's not talking about that at all. It's talking about something entirely different. He says, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered. Well, you would, that's, that sentence would be meaningless if it wasn't the same people there. So it's in the lifetime of people. It's in the, the life history of the planet that there will be a change of heavens and earth. It's not talking the cosmos at all. And, but be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create, for I will create Jerusalem to be a delight and its people a joy. So we can talk about some of those things over the next couple of sessions. So tonight, the book of Revelation, I mean it's huge. And no pastor ever has time to teach all that could be taught out of the book of Revelation. You know what you've got to do? You've got to read books. All I can do is give you an inkling of the way to approach it, what it is, how to understand it, but in terms of its detail, you have got to access books. And thankfully, the best book available that will give you a blow-by-blow -blow description of what the book of Revelation is all about is free to a good home. No, not this one. This one is mine. But it just so happens that there is a website from which you can download the entire book freely and read it in your Kindle. And uh, this book is called The Days of Vengeance. And it is a commentary, big book as you can see, on the book of Revelation. And I'll show you in a moment just how useful such a book is. But let me tell you, just to read the preface, which is not written by the author, the author's fantastic, but the preface written by someone else, that alone is worth the trouble of finding the book. Anyway, David Chilton is the author. The book is called The Days of Vengeance and the website, now no one's allowed to go there and start downloading it in the meeting. The website is called 
freebooks.com. What could be more simple? freebooks.com and you will find it is a huge library of books across every useful subject imaginable by Christians. Uh, anyway, you can start downloading when you get home. But uh, we're not going to quote the book, but I'm going to tell you tonight in, in a little while one of the things that you will find in that book. However, here's what I have to say to you about how to approach the reading of the book of Revelation because your problem you have, remember I said a few minutes ago that you've got these two viewpoints in the world where a minority, but a large minority of Christians make a lot out of, oh, the world's getting worse and it's almost will be ended. But others have a much more biblical point of view with respect to what the Lord wants to achieve in the world. Well, the way you approach the book of Revelation or your understanding of it is going to affect that viewpoint. So if when you read the book of Revelation you think you are reading about the end of the world, you could very easily end up with a pessimistic point of view and live in fear. The book of Revelation was not written to cause you to live in fear. In fact, the book of Revelation is meant to show you, on the one hand, the glory of Christ and his victory over everything, and the destruction of all his enemies, and on the other hand, the book of Revelation is meant to show you the glory of the church and her acceptance with God and the astounding wonders into which we are, have been brought. It's, an, it's a wonderful book, but if you think it is about the end of the world and you think that all these curses, all the vials of of, of wrath and bowls of wrath and, and trumpets of wrath are all about to be poured out upon the world, you will have a very pessimistic view indeed. And my task tonight is to explain to you that the book of Revelation is not about the end of the world, but it was about the end of the age. It was about the end of the old covenant age. It was, it was about the end of Old Covenant Jerusalem and the Levitical economy, and it is all about the wrath of God being poured out upon the generation that lived during and following the crucifixion of Jesus. And this I want to show you. So here are the few things that you need to know, at least as far as I'm concerned tonight, about the book of Revelation. Number one, I have about four of these. Number one, the words of John's vision, the words that John wrote, his opening words and his closing words took great pains to make it clear to the reader that the events written in the book were imminent then. Let me try and put that more simply. John took great pains, or perhaps we should say Jesus took great pains to make it very clear to those who read and heard the book read that the events being described were about to happen right then. Not now, not 2,000 years later, not 100 years from now. It was very clear that it was all about to happen in the lifetime in the very near lifetime of the people who first received the letter. So this I want to show you and take a few minutes over. Now, Revelation 1 and verse 1. This is the first verse. Look at it closely. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John. Notice then... How many hands this has passed through? According to this text, God the Father gives this revelation to Jesus who gave it to an angel to take it to John so John could give it to the churches. But look what it says. Which God gave him, that is God gave to Jesus, to show to his servants, that is to the servants of Jesus, the things that must soon take place. Now if you were John writing this, and if you were the churches receiving it, it would be very clear 
This is telling us about things we've got to be ready for right now. Get ourselves ready. It's all about to happen. Two verses later, Revelation 1 verse 3. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. Notice these days, we don't seem to operate like the description here. And that was a very clever description. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. What's that all about? This is when the church used to meet, the same as in synagogues, they didn't all have a copy. They would meet and listen while someone read. It's describing that culture. It's describing those times. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear. It's describing a meeting of the first century. And then, what's it say? For the time is near. And then just four verses later, behold, He's coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him, even so. Amen. It's very imminent. It's very pressing. The trouble is a modern day reader reads this bit about he's coming with the clouds and every eye will see him. And you think it's describing a visible event like the second coming of Jesus. But these people knew fine well what this meant. The Old Testament is full of this imagery that if God came on the clouds, it meant he was coming to judge. You didn't see God, but you saw the troubles. You, you saw the days in which these judgments were poured out. That's what the symbolism means. And so when, when this verse says, behold, he's coming with the clouds, it means Jesus is about to act in history. He's about to judge nations. He's about to judge peoples. And every eye will see him. What it means is every eye will recognize that he's the one that's doing it. This will become clearer when we get to Matthew in a little while. Even those who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth. For earth read land. Land. The land of Israel. The, the world isn't full of tribes. You and I aren't a tribe. But Israel, Israel was very tribal. It's the great distinctive of the nation of Israel. I mean, yes, if, if you go to the jungles, it's tribe. But in terms of formal and large nations, they were not tribal, but Israel was. And this, this the tribes of the land, is very much an Old Testament buzz phrase for Israel. Even those who pierced him and all the tribes of the land will wail on account of him. Now, this is just, this is just the first chapter pressing this imminence. It's near, it's soon, it's about to happen, there's a judgment coming. So now we step to the next chapter and to the letter, uh, in the letter to Pergamum, Jesus writes seven letters to seven churches. By the way, these churches were all in a province of, a Roman province called Asia. Rome, the Roman Empire had ten provinces. Asia was one of them and Asia is very significant and I'll explain why in a minute. And the seven letters to the seven churches are all in this province of Asia. It's like, uh, it's like there was a ring road, the, high, the main highway, and they were strung out all along it. It's a bit like if you go from here to, here to Longreach, you know, and you've got, you've got Rockhampton and you've got Blackwater and you've got Emerald and so on and so forth. And uh, so here in the third letter, the one to Pergamum, Jesus says, and the reason I'm quoting this is for you to see the word come and the word soon. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. I want you to see clearly what come means and what soon means. When Jesus says come, it should be obvious to you he is not talking about a visible appearing. He's talking about coming, sure. In per, per, he will personally deal with the trouble. He will turn up and deal with it, but they won't see him. This is, this is very often, in fact, almost always, this is the meaning of coming. The Bible talks about many comings, and they are generally judgment comings. But look at the word soon. 
What does soon mean in the context? Soon means within the, the, the next few years. It, means, it certainly means within the lifetimes of the people who were there then. Otherwise, this is a complete nonsense statement. If the, if the fault Jesus is highlighting with this church is that there are some people there right then who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans, and he says, repent, or I'll come soon and deal with it, if, if you put these words off 2,000 years, it's meaningless. It's only meaningful if when he said soon, he meant soon. And you'll find that all through the book of Revelation, there are many, it, it, by the way, chapter 1 and, and the last chapter, chapter 22, are full of the word soon. And soon means soon, and near means near, and the time is short means the time is short. And, you know, John bent over backwards. The Holy Spirit bent over backwards. Angels bent over backwards to make sure that the first and the last chapters of the book of Revelation were full of these expressions, soon, near, you know, the, the great imminence of the thing. The whole prophecy was about events that happened within a matter of years of this book being written. Here's another example. The sixth letter to Philadelphia, Revelation 3, verse 10. Because you've kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. Can you see again that he's speaking to people in that day or it's a meaningless statement? He's talking to, he's talking to individuals in that church right then and he says to them, you've kept my word to be patient. Therefore, I'm going to keep you. And what that means is that this hour of trial... It's right there. I will keep you from the hour of trial. The book of Revelation is about to describe that hour of trial, and it was going to occur in the lifetime of the people to whom this letter was written. The next verse, just continuing, it's still on the screen. I am coming soon. So you get another soon. So how many of you have had five soon so far? Hold fast to what you have so that no one may seize your crown. And all I'm trying to make it very make clear to you tonight is that the events described in the book of Revelation were things that took place in the first century. Now it doesn't mean it's not meaningful us to us. It's hugely meaningful. The message of the book of Revelation, its meaning, the things we learn from it, what it has to say is applicable every day of our lives and will be applicable every day of the lives of all the Christians to come for centuries and millennia. But the actual events prophesied or foretold that this will happen, that will happen, all took place in the first century. We go to the last chapter, verse, uh, chapter 22, verse 6. And he said to me, he's, he's closing out the apocalypse now. By the way, the word apocalypse simply means revelation. And he said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. Again, such a clear word to people who would read it then, hear it read then. It was to happen in their days. And the next verse, and behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. And then we get to a most interesting text, Revelation 22:10. And he said to me, now he's now talking to John, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book for the time is near. We'll come back to that very soon. But speaking of soons, there are actually two more in that chapter that we won't take, wait, take time to show you on the screen. But what I've shown you is not exhaustive. There are others. So this is the first thing to re remember about the book of Revelation, the author of the book, whether you count the author as the God the Father, as Jesus, as the angel, as John, great pains were taken in the writing of this book to make it clear that Christians did not make a mistake about the timing of the events. It was a prophecy for then describing events that would take place in their lifetimes. Number two, Hand in hand with that, the early church in the days of Peter and Paul and John and James, 
were actually expecting an imminent eschatological judgment to be personally delivered upon their world by Jesus. It had been preached. It had been preached by Jesus. It had been preached by all the apostles. It's in the scriptures. I'm not going to take the time to pull out for you from the epistles and the gospels uh, all the examples, but I give you, I give you just one little text. Here's uh, James 5, 9. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. And I know you can interpret this as, you know, general life. But the truth is that all through the New Testament, the fact is Jesus, Jesus said things would happen in the lifetime of his hearers. I'll show you that in a moment. And Peter and Paul and James and John were all teachers of uh, an imminent eschatological judgment to be delivered upon their world, which is constantly referred to as his coming. Number three, Jesus had taught them clearly that he was coming back to judge those who judged him and not only to judge those who sat in judgment upon him, but the generation that rejected him, the generation that was apostate Israel. For example, Matthew 26, this is in the trial of Jesus and he's before the Sanhedrin verse 63 yes it's there Jesus remained silent and the high priest said to him I adjure you by the living God tell us if you are the Christ the son of God Jesus said to him you've said so but I tell you from now on you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven now it might, might not be totally clear to you, but if you look, look in those English words to the phrase where, but I tell you from now on, the Greek wording as recorded by Matthew means the next thing that will happen is. In other words, after this, you're going to see that it's, um, it's a near time event Jesus is predicting. You will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Now, this is an allusion to Daniel chapter 5, where there is a description of, it says, someone like a son of man, and it described him as coming on the clouds of heaven, but entering the presence of the Almighty, receiving dominion, authority, power, rule. You know, his kingdom lasts forever and ever and ever. It was a description of the son of man being exalted to the right hand of the Father, and Jesus here is putting himself in that place and saying, you will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven. And that phrase meant one thing and one thing only to his hearers, that he was coming back to judge them, a, a, a cataclysmic eschatological judgment upon the Israel of that day. And he did. He described it himself. In fact, you go back two chapters in Matthew 24 using the same terminology. Jesus, sitting with his disciples on the Mount of Olives, told them, verse 30, Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. Where have you heard that phrase before? comes straight out of the book of Revelation chapter 1. So long before John wrote it in chapter 1 of the book of Revelation, Jesus had said it. But it's, but it's not just from there. It goes back to Zechariah. Then all the tribes of the land will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Now, you might say, well, all very well and good, but what about this opening phrase here, then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. There's a mystifying phrase for you, but it comes down to, to translation. Here is the literal, uh, from Young's literal translation. It, it, it turns out that the modern translators have smoothed it out to make it sensible to a modern reader, but it doesn't mean they captured the meaning. So the modern English here says, then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. It's making it look like something's going to appear in the sky. 
And some people foolishly have suggested, oh, a big banner is going to be unrolled. Well, that's just, that's just nonsense. The literal, um, a literal translation of the Greek says, then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. Put it, put it slightly different way for clarity. Then shall appear the sign that the Son of Man is in heaven. What was the sign? It was the judgment poured out. In other words, the proof to Israel, the proof to the Pharisees, the proof to the Sanhedrin, the proof to the church, the proof to all the Jewish scoffers who said, where's his coming? Was when the judgment was poured out upon Jerusalem as Jesus had predicted as the apostles had preached it would occur for 40 years and the Roman armies turned up and finally the temple was destroyed, that was the sign that the Son of Man was ruling. The Son of Man was reigning. Jesus was in heaven and he was delivering the judgments that he had said he would deliver on, present, on pleasant earth. So when you read Matthew 24, 30, don't read it as then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. Read it as then will appear the sign, the evidence. Then will appear the evidence that the Son of Man is in heaven. And that is completely accurate and true to the, the Greek language as uh, recorded here by Matthew. And even this word appear, you know, don't be, don't be so wooden in understanding it that you think it's got to be visible. We, we use that word with invisible things as well as visible, with uh, literal as, and figurative as well. And when you, when you go, once again, look at the Greek word that they've translated appear, which is phino, it means, it means to show. And it can be literal or figurative to, to, to be seen or to, uh, to be, uh, where are we, to bring forth into the light or to become evident. And to become clear, another meaning is to appear to the mind. In other words, it's like, it's like when we say in English, oh, I see. We're not talking about something we see at all, but we've, we've grasped the understanding. Oh, it appears. Yes, it appears. People, people, you say that in a court case. Well, it appears from the evidence that. And that's how you can read that. Uh, and we're into our third point here. And um, here's... Here's another side to the same coin. What, what's our point here? Jesus had taught them clearly that he was coming back to judge. Something else that was often in the words of Jesus that you need to get straight. He often referred to this generation. I'll give you examples, Matthew 24, 33. So when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. So everything that we've already described, Jesus said, this generation, in other words, the generation then living. And people turn themselves into in, inside out to try and explain this away, to try and make the word generation mean, oh, oh a race. So it's Israel. Israel won't pass away. Or, or this present world. No, this present world won't pass away. But in every other place in the Bible where the word generation is used, it means the generation of people then presently living. Here's another example. As in Matthew 23, and this, Jesus' words uses the word generation here too, and, and the context here makes it even clearer that it must be the people who are alive then. So Matthew 23, 34, Therefore I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you'll flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town. Now, up to now, yes, those things you, you could say, well, that could go on for thousands of years. True, but we haven't finished reading. So that on you, he's now speaking to the people present right there, on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Barakiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation and there are other scriptures supporting the fact that judgment for the whole historical sins of Israel would finally be paid for would finally come upon Israel in that day it's been like Jesus on you know on his way to the cross saying you know weep not for me but for yourselves and so on and so forth he wept he wept over Jerusalem because of what was coming 
And Mark 8, uh, this is interesting too. Um, the, the last verse of Mark 8 and the first verse of Mark 9, Jesus says, and bear in mind he is speaking of Israelites, he's speaking to Israel in the day in which he was with them. For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. He's talking about the soon coming judgment on Jerusalem. And he said to them, and how do we know? Because the very next thing he said, it's on the board. And he said to them, truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And you might say, oh, well, that was the day of Pentecost. But no, this kingdom of God coming with power, the Son of Man coming on the clouds with power, this is a reference to the final outworking of the prophecies of Jesus with respect to the destruction of Jerusalem. Peter, who stands up on the day of Pentecost, includes this because he says in his preaching, you know, this is that prophesied by Joel who said, in the last days I will pour out my spirit and your sons and daughters will prophesy, your old men dream dreams, you know, servants, I'll you know, pour out my spirit. But he adds on that there'll be blood and fire and vapor of smoke in Jerusalem. In fact, all he's doing is quoting Joel's prophecy. Joel put the two together. And the fact is that the events of, of the, the passion of Jesus, his crucifixion, his resurrection, his ascension to the Father, the pouring out of the Holy Spirit cannot be separated from the then judgment that comes upon Jerusalem. So the Spirit of God came upon Jerusalem and whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And the judgments of Jesus also came upon Jerusalem and it's one complete work. It all tends to be described together, prophesied together, and you take it as a whole, the kingdom of God, that, the body of Christ, the church was established on earth with power. And if you had lived in those days, you would have known something was really up and changed in the world. Fourth item. Uh, Yep, we're, we're nearly through what I have to say tonight. Why was the book of Revelation addressed to the seven churches of Asia and not simply addressed to the whole body of Christ? And for questions like this, you can get answers from really good books like this. And this is why I'm recommending it, The Days of Vengeance. Oh, by the way, that phrase, the days of vengeance, is a Bible phrase. Would you like to know where it comes from? After Jesus was baptized, he, he went into the desert for prayer, actually, 40 days of prayer, and while there, tempted by the devil, came out of the desert, his first duty in ministry, he came out of the desert in the power of the Spirit, Luke 4 tells us. His first duty in ministry was he went to the synagogue in Nazareth where he'd been brought up. It was his turn to read the Bible that Sunday, that Saturday. <laughs> he, he finds the place in the prophet Isaiah that he wanted to read. He reads the famous passage, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor, recovery of sight to the blind, you know, and, and so on and so forth. And the final phrase was, and to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. That is a jubilee. That's what the gospel is. And he closed the scroll and said, this day or today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. But he didn't finish reading the quote. He stopped reading one item short because the next line in the prophet Isaiah was not being fulfilled that day. Remember what Jesus said, this day, this scripture. And so the prophecy of Isaiah, like the prophecy of Joel, included both the pouring out of salvation and the pouring out of judgment. But three years later, when Jesus was describing, and you find this, by the way, in the Gospel of Luke, 
when Jesus was describing the judgment of Jerusalem, when he was describing the great tribulation, which is what that is, and that the Roman armies would come and surround the city and so on and so forth, Jesus included there in his description the phrase that he had not tacked on three years before. It was in Luke then, in describing the, ju- the judgment of Jerusalem, that he said, those will be the days of vengeance. And that's where this book gets its title from, from the prophecy in Isaiah and from the statement of Jesus. Jesus' description of the destruction of Jerusalem and the judgment that fell on old covenant Israel that completely destroyed the city, destroyed the priesthood, destroyed the temple and destroyed forever the Levitical economy and the whole mosaic system never to be recovered, never to be rebuilt, all the priesthood destroyed. That those were the days of vengeance and it is those days of vengeance that the book of Revelation describes. The book of Revelation is a very Jewish book. And uh, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of allusions to the Old Testament. Uh, I'll come back to that in just a moment. I want to answer this question. Why was the book of Revelation addressed to the seven churches of Asia? And you will find this answer in beautiful detail on pages 7, 8 and beyond in that book. But here's a quick little summary, and it's this. Why Asia? One, after the destruction of Jerusalem, the province of Asia became the most influential center of Christianity in the Roman Empire. In other words, it was sent to that part of the Roman Empire that after Jerusalem was destroyed, so there's, see, up until then, the Jerusalem church was the center of world Christianity. But now it's gone. All those Christians had fled. They did what Jesus said. When you see the armies flee, they fled. Not one Christian perished in the destruction of Jerusalem. So there's, there's no more church there because there's no more city there. In fact, nobody lived there for another 200 years. But the, the places to which the book of Revelation was sent became the center the influential center of Christianity for the Roman Empire. Reason two, Asia was a very strong center of emperor worship. It was a cult at Ephesus and Smyrna and Pergamum. You know, these are the names of the towns that have the letters. And all through that province of Asia, the Caesar cult was more popular than anywhere else imperialism was huge and the church in that province was up against grave circumstances they needed the book for example octavian the emperor uh, the original emperor had changed his name to augustus and he was called the son of god you know august anyway he was called the son of god his coins this is interesting the coins that augustus put out proclaimed that there was salvation in no one else but Augustus and that no other name was given under heaven for the salvation of men. You can see why the apostles wrote those words in, in the scriptures about Jesus. And this was common to all the Caesars. And as the age progressed, one phrase was used increasingly, Caesar is Lord. And for Rome, the religious and pious man was the one who recognized Rome as central to every point in his life And for Rome, Christianity was a treasonable faith and a danger to the political order. So anyway, the province of Asia was where all of this was going to be played out in time. Earlier, I showed you on the the board Revelation 22.10. I want to take you to Daniel 12. Well, now let me me show you 22.10 first of all. Find Revelation 22.10. Here it is. Take a look at these words. He said to me, this is to John, Do not seal up the words of the prophecy of the book, for the time is near. Now we compare this to Revelation chapter 12, written, you know, some, you know, 500 give or take years before. Daniel chapter 12, verse 4. But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. 
Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. So Daniel gets given all this information about the end, not the end of the world, the end of the age, the end of the Jewish age, the end of the Jewish nation. But he's told, this 500 plus years before that end is to come, seal up the words. In other words, no one will understand it. It's written, there are words in the book of Daniel, no one will have a clue what it means, it's sealed. But when John gets this revelation, he's told, do not seal it, the time is near. In other words, revelation continues on where Daniel pick, uh, leaves off. It's, um, one author has said that the book of Revelation is really Daniel part two. It is very Jewish and there's a lot else could be said about that. It's, it's wonderful. If you understand the Jewish idiom, the Jewish symbolism, by the way, uh, yes, the book of Revelation is full of symbols and I've said here often enough, unless you're willing to study the Old Testament and to understand prophetic symbolism, the, the language, the, the apocalyptic language, the metaphor of the prophets, don't pretend that you understand what the symbols in the book of Revelation mean. Reason being is they all come from there. That is their source. Now John doesn't directly quote the Old Testament but he uses the language of the Old Testament, he uses the pictures, he uses the symbols, so he draws all that rich heritage to, to uh, give us the revelation, this, this apocalypse of the Lord Jesus. And um, I don't have time to give you endless examples of it, except to say that of these more than 500 connections with the Old Testament that are in Revelation, most of them are from the prophetic books and that is from Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel and Daniel in particular but also from minor prophets and um, references to Zechariah, Joel, Amos, Hosea are most common. The book of Revelation draws heavily on Leviticus, it draws heavily on the book of Exodus. Uh, its, its structure is uh, the same structure as many of the books of the Old Testament, that is a covenant structure. It's um, uh, there's much else could be said and there's no time to say it except to say that unless you understand the book of Revelation in that context and to realize that it is speaking about things that the Old Testament had spoken about on many occasions and it brings them to a place where the, it's, it's the if, if you like it's the official book that closes the Old Covenant and judges the, the, the great harlot, the faithless wife of Jehovah, judges her, calls her Sodom and Egypt and Babylon and her smoke and her torment rises forever. This is the destruction of Jerusalem. And then brings forth the bride of Christ, pure, and presents this bride the, as the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God to the earth. That we'll come back to. But un unless, unless you can see the book of Revelation that way, a, a phenomenal book, an astounding book, the only book in the Bible that says if you read it, you'll be blessed. But you have to be able to see it. You have to be able to read it with this understanding. And of course, you'll read things in there when you get down to the particulars that you don't grasp. How some of that imagery works but that's why you need good books. That's only one good book. There are many. This one's free. But uh, it's very handy because you can look up a reference. You know, Revelation 17 and 10. What could that possibly mean? You can look in the book and <laughs> read a whole blurb and think, oh, yeah, the symbolism. So it's, it's worth your while becoming students. The purpose of tonight, the time is up. The purpose of tonight is to in a sense, remove out of the hearts and minds of people a hindrance to believing that the gospel is here to transform the world of the future. If the book of Revelation is, you know, is, a, is a hindrance in the road because people are thinking that it's describing the end of the world and it's always soon but it's never here yet, you've got a problem. But if you can properly understand where to place it in history, the events have taken place, the, the, the judgment that took place 
on Old Covenant Israel emancipated the gospel. And as a result of that, the gospel has been going to nation after nation, unhindered. All the schemes of men and of devils cannot stop the gospel progressively spreading out in this world, taking hold of hearts, uh, saving lives, changing nations, and it's continuing this, this day and every day. It will not come to an end. And uh, so therefore, a proper perspective on the book of Revelation will help you. So what were the four points? To summarize here, we're back, here they are. The words of John's vision, that is the words we find in the book of Revelation, uh, great pains were taken with these words so that you wouldn't miss the point that it was to happen soon after it was written. It was a prophecy for them. It's scripture for us. It's wonderful revelation for us too. But the events are not prophesied for us. That was number one. Number two, the early church in the days of Peter, Paul, John and James we're expecting an imminent astrological judgment. And when you read your New Testament, you'll see that come up again and again. Don't be fooled into thinking you're reading about the end of the world. You were reading words that were written to people alive right then, dealing with pressures that were on them right then, telling them what, what, what may be coming in their days. Now, we draw lessons from that for our days, but we don't assume that, that, oh, this is the dark end of the world, when what was being described was that dark end of that age. Item three was Jesus had taught them that he was coming back to judge that generation and those who judged him. And that gen the generation meant generation. Some of you alive here today, he said, will see this. And item four, I addressed uh, the subject, why was the book of Revelation written to the churches of Asia it's because they would carry not only the great burden of all the worst that the Roman Empire had to throw, but they would become the most influential centre of world Christianity for a long time to come. So there you are. Uh, questions are always welcomed, but not tonight. We're going to quit. Uh, qu questions are welcomed online and in church life at any time. So there you are. The purpose of tonight was removing one more roadblock to a proper understanding, that is to, to, to understanding in the heart that you can have a positive eschatology, a positive worldview, a clear faith, and it's a clear faith you need when you pray, and especially when you come to church prayer meetings, we must believe God for the good of the world. Despite pandemics, despite the threats of wars or any other threat, financial downturns, difficult times, whatever, we are still going to pray and believe for the glory of God to be upon the year ahead. We're going to believe to see the hand of God no matter what. When Patrick went to Ireland, or when Judson went to Burma, or when Xavier went to China, or when Carey went to India, none of them were so foolish as to think that these scriptures were telling them the world would end anytime soon. They went believing. They had time to win nations, time to translate the scripture, time to bring many generations to Jesus. And guess what? They did bring many generations to Jesus. They were not hindered. They weren't hampered by foolish and negative and, and ill-educated points of view uh, with respect to their worldview. So... I'm urging upon you a positive worldview. Tomorrow night, we'll discuss the new heavens and the new earth and what that means, not in terms of the cosmos, but what it means in terms of the whole spirit and, and, and times under which we live and operate, what, what it is and what should be expected, and so on and so forth. So let's pray together. Father, I thank you for the word of God, and I thank you that it's, it's a reasonable word. That is... It's vast, and yet we can learn. We can, we can reason with one another, and Scripture interprets Scripture. Thank you, there is so much wealth in this book. And one part of the book speaks to other parts of the book. And so there are many witnesses, so many internal witnesses 
of what these things mean. I think we can have a positive faith tonight. We put our trust in the Lord Jesus to transform this city, transform this nation, the gospel continuing to transform the nations of the world. Thank you that no matter what ups and downs there may be in the daily news, we believe God. Christ is enthroned and he ultimately is the ruler of all things all nations will serve him, you've said. All kings will serve him. All families of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord, you've said. These things are written. And Jesus said, Scripture cannot be broken. So, Lord, we thank you for the long ages that will bring glory to God. You're an eternal God, an infinite God. Your power infinite, your wisdom infinite. And I thank you, Lord, in like manner, the work you will do with nations is vast. The ages will be long. The numbers redeemed will be huge. Just as the apostle also said in the book of Revelation, a crowd so vast, no one could number them. We praise God for a mighty work of salvation. And thank you, Lord, your hand is upon all the nations. Your hand is upon our lives as well. So we receive, Lord, of your blessings and your grace tonight. Thank you for the Holy Spirit. Would you grant us more of the Holy Spirit, more understanding, more insight? Lord, ask, come right now. Holy Spirit, come. Enlighten every heart. And in Jesus' name, fill them. Fill these hearers with the Holy Spirit. And may understanding go deep to the heart. I thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.